I want you to open your Bible to the book of James. And today I'm going to teach three different things. So we're going to begin in part, part one, the second service. We're going to do part two. And then tonight we're going to do something different. But Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the wonderful word of God. And Holy Spirit, today we ask you to open the scriptures to us. We look to you as the great master teacher. You are the one that inspired this book. And Holy Spirit, I'm personally looking to you today to be my helper. I ask you to open this word for me and for everyone in this place and that you would take us into the scriptures until we feel them, we live them, and we're changed by them. And we ask you this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. By the way, Pastor Mark, when is this service supposed to be over? 10.30. All right. So go to the book of James, and today we're going to be in a James chapter 1, verse 1. I'm a Bible teacher, so today we're going to go to Bible school. How's that? And we're going to begin in James chapter 1, verse 1. And verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Today we're going to begin the very first of verse 1 where it says, James. And today you're going to need an ink pen or a pencil and a piece of paper to take notes. But if you would either underline or circle that word James in the very first of this verse. This James is very, very important because he was the half-brother of Jesus. And the reason we call him the half-brother of Jesus is because James and Jesus had the same mother's mother, but they did not have the same father. James' father was Joseph, and we know that Jesus' father was God. But this really was the half-brother of Jesus. And in fact, if you study the scriptures, you find that after Jesus was born, he was the firstborn. But after his birth, there were additional brothers and sisters who were born to the family of Mary and Joseph. We can read some of their names in Matthew 13, verse 55, where the firstborn after Jesus was James. Then another son was named Joseph, another was Simeon, and a younger son was named Jude, who also wrote a book of the New Testament, and that is the book of Jude. So when you come to the family of Jesus, you find it is quite a remarkable family. But in addition to the boys, if you read Matthew 13, verse 56, it also says that Jesus had sisters, and in Greek it is plural, which means there were at least two. So if you look at the family of Mary and Joseph, first of all, the mother is the Virgin Mary. The firstborn is God in the flesh. The nextborn is James, who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then there was a son, Joseph, a son, Simeon, a son, Jude. Jude also became later an apostle and wrote the book of James in the New Testament. And we know that Jesus' sisters married men who served in the ministry. And here we have an example of how God calls families. How many of you want God to call your family? Beginning in the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament, we see that God called families. For example, God called Jacob and his sons. God called Noah and his sons. You come to the New Testament and you find wonderful examples of Timothy who was called into the ministry with his mother and with his grandmother. You find the example of Barnabas and John Mark. They had a sister, John, Barnabas had a sister whose name was Mary. Mary had a big living room near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and that big living room is where Pentecost took place. How would you like for Pentecost to happen in your living room? She had a brother whose name was Barnabas who was called into the ministry. She had a son whose name was John Mark. This is the John Mark who wrote the book of Mark. And here we find another family that was called into the ministry. Then you study the life of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul tells us that he had other relatives who were also called to be apostles. So God absolutely delights in choosing families. And if you want God to choose your entire family, just say, God, here we are. Choose mine. Because God loves to choose families. But James did not begin as a believer in Jesus. And in fact, when you study the scriptures, we find in John chapter 7, verse 5, that none of Jesus' brothers originally believed in him. 
And in fact, James didn't just disbelieve in Jesus. He really despised Jesus when he was growing up. Now, you may wonder, how could you grow up in the same household with Jesus and despise him? Well, just imagine. If your older brother was God in the flesh, who never did anything right, who was commended for everything that he ever did, and you were constantly being compared to your elder brother. And in fact, James developed such a resentment toward Jesus that when Jesus began his public ministry, James was not yet a believer. He opposed the ministry of Jesus, would even try to undermine the ministry of Jesus, and was viewed as one of the major enemies of Jesus. And that is why, after the resurrection, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus appeared to James. And it was at that moment when James saw his resurrected brother that he understood the reason his brother was so good is because he really was God in the flesh. And that is when James believed and was converted and became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And history tells us he was such a man of prayer that his knees looked like the knees of a camel because he spent so many hours on his knees praying to the one that he had grown up with. And we even know the end of James' life. James eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And of course, as the half-brother of Jesus, he had a great notoriety simply because of that. And because of his notoriety, the leaders of the Sanhedrin came to him and they said, James, we'd like to cut a deal with you. We want you to publicly announce that Jesus was a fraud. And if you will announce that Jesus was a fraud, we will lay the kingdoms of this world at your feet. Now, isn't that interesting? Because that's nearly the same temptation which Satan offered to Jesus in the wilderness. And what you find is the devil's really not so creative. He just does the same thing over and over and over again. So if you can find how the devil operates, then you can understand the way he will try to attack you. But they offered him the kingdoms of this world. So he said, let's do it. And they led him to the pinnacle of the temple. That's also interesting because that's where the devil led Jesus. And when James was standing on the pinnacle of the temple with the leaders of the Sanhedrin there with him, they blew the big horns and assembled the people of Jerusalem. They came together and James made the declaration, let it be known that this Jesus whom you have slain with wicked hands is both Lord and Christ. He seized the moment to preach. And because the Sanhedrin was standing with him, it looked like they had come forward to make their public proclamation of faith. And they were so incensed, they pushed James from the pinnacle of the temple. He hit the ground, and at the bottom of the temple, he was clubbed to death. But that is who James is. He was called James the Just because he was such a man of integrity. But notice that when you come to this verse, he identifies himself as James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant in Greek is the word dolos, spelled D-O-U-L-O-S. The word dolos is what we would call the most abject term for a slave. This is one that is sold lock, stock, and barrel, and for the rest of his life, he lives to fulfill the desires of his master. And now James describes himself as one that is completely sold out and he says he is the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the word and in Greek is the word kai, which is really a clarifying statement. A better translation would be, I am a sold out servant of God, kai, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually stating who God is. And notice that James calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all say that. Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Well, did you know the book of James is the oldest book in the New Testament? And because it is the oldest book in the New Testament, it means that phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, appears in biblical literature for the very first time right here in this verse. It had never been written before. So why does James call him the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, because the word Lord, the Greek word kurios, in the Old Testament Greek Septuagint is translated Jehovah, Jehovah. 
So first of all, by calling Jesus Kurios or Lord, he is declaring, this is not just a mere man. This is Jehovah himself. Secondly, he calls him Jesus. The word Jesus means Yahweh who delivers or Yahweh who saves. So first we find Jesus is Jehovah. Secondly, we find Jesus is the deliverer and Jesus is the savior. And lastly, he calls him Christ from the Greek word Christos, which can mean the Messiah. And that's how most people think of it. But there's something very important about this word Christos. In the world at this particular time, if you were sick and you needed medication, you would go to the pharmacy. And believe it or not, they really did have pharmacies. And when you came to the pharmacy to ask for a healing balm, you would say, I want to buy some Christos. Christos was a healing balm which was believed to have medicinal effects. And so when he calls Jesus Christos, not only does he declare that he is the Messiah, but he is God's healing balm for anything that negatively affects any part of your being. And so now James, the brother of Jesus, says the man that I grew up with was not just a good man, but he was Kurios, he was the Lord, he is Jehovah, he is Jesus, he is Yahweh who saves, Yahweh that has delivering power. He is Christos. He is the Messiah. And he is the healing balm for anything that ails you in any part of your life. And we need to understand, these are not just words, Lord Jesus Christ. It really is a very calculated statement to declare who he is. And every time we just say, Lord Jesus Christ, we are literally making a statement of faith that Jesus is God in the flesh, Jehovah. He is the one who saves. He is the one who delivers. And he is God's healing balm for anything that afflicts me or anybody else. That's what the three words, Lord Jesus Christ, means. And it comes from the very lips and from the very pen of Jesus' own half-brother. And then James says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. If you have an ink pen or a pencil, underline or circle those two words, scattered abroad. In the ancient world, there were two ways of sowing seed. The first manner of sowing seed was to plant seed in a very nice, neat, orderly roll. But then there was a second method, which was called diasporia. And that's the word that is used here, translated scattered abroad. The word diasporia described the random sowing of seed. An example would be a farmer is walking through his field. He reaches into a satchel of seed and with no rhyme and no reason, he grabs a whole handful of it and then just randomly begins to hurl it this direction. He begins to throw it this direction and throw more this direction, just the random scattering of seed. And that is the word which is used here. It describes something very abrupt, something very chaotic, something very random. And by using this word, we know that the people James is writing to are people who have diasporia. They've been scattered randomly and chaotically all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire. And this scattering of believers began in Acts chapter 8. So let's just go ahead and go there. Can we go there together? And I want you to see where this began. It began in Acts chapter 8. And when we come to the book of Acts, the very first chapters, we find the church in Jerusalem was growing very, very quickly. The church was becoming very powerful. And then a persecution was launched against the church. This persecution was led by Saul of Tarsus, it was Saul of Tarsus who gave the final vote for Stephen to be stoned to death. We read about that in the end of chapter 7. But then we come to chapter 8 and verse 1, which says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Actually, the Greek says Saul cast his vote for his murder. This was actually an act of murder. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. The word great is the word mega. It describes something that is immense. The word persecution is the Greek word dioko, which is really the old word for a hunt. And if you're going to translate this correctly, it would say at that time there was a massive hunt against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And as you continue in this text, you find that Saul 
and his special force of police began going from house to house inside the city of Jerusalem, trying to find anybody who looked like they were a believer. And they arrested those that were believers and even hauled them into prison. And in fact, look at what it says in verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women and committing them to prison. Verse 4, therefore they were what? Scattered abroad. There's the same word, diasporia. This was the first scattering of believers which occurred during the first century. And now years have passed and James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And James is now receiving letters from these believers that have been scattered abroad. And when they were scattered due to persecution, they were scattered chaotically. They were scattered randomly with no rhyme and no reason. And in fact, it was so abrupt that they lost their homes they lost their finances. They lost their possessions. Many of them lost other members of their families because they were so randomly scattered. This was very disjointed. And, you know, the devil probably thought that they were becoming too strong in the city of Jerusalem, so I've got to divide them in order to stop them. But, in fact, he scattered them like seed all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire. And everywhere they went, they preached the gospel, and that seed grew up and gave birth to the church. And friends, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what the devil tries to do. It always backfires. And the truth is, if they had just stayed huddled in Jerusalem, other places may not have been met. But because of what took place, they were scattered like seed, and they produced the kingdom of God everywhere that they went. But now James, serving as the senior leader of the church in Jerusalem, and because he is Jesus' half-brother, he has a notoriety that no one else has. And he's going to his mailbox every day. And his mailbox is packed with letters coming from these believers that have been scattered all over the eastern lands of the Roman Empire. When they came to Christ, they came to Christ because it was good news. Everybody say good news. It was good news for the poor. It was good news for the sick. It was good news for the oppressed. Everything about the gospel was good news. But ever since they've been randomly scattered abroad, it seems like they've not experienced anything but bad news in their lives. And they're wondering, why has this happened to us? And they're writing letters to James. We know that because he responds to their letters in verse 13 where he identifies what they're saying to him. And when you come to verse 13, we find James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And you understand the Greek means neither tempteth he any man with evil. But notice at the very first of verse 13, he says, let no man say. The Greek has a double negative. It is very, very strong. A literal rendering would be stop it, stop it now. I don't want to hear this anymore. How dare you say this to me? Those of you that are saying this, stop it, stop it now. I never want to hear this again. Well, what were they saying? Let no man say when he is what? Tempted. I am tempted of God. This particular word for tempted is a Greek word which means to crush, to decimate, or to destroy. This is not just a little test. This is an event that is absolutely crushing and devastating. And the reason this word is used here is because that's what these believers feel that they are experiencing in their lives. These were Jews who had been prosperous when they lived in Jerusalem. But since they've been scattered, they've lost it all. And they feel their lives are being crushed decimated and destroyed. And now James says, stop it now. I never want to hear it again. Don't ever say to me again that when you are being crushed, devastated, and destroyed, I am being tempted. And the word tempted means crushed, devastated, or destroyed of God. The word of in this verse is very important. In fact, either underline it or circle it. It may be the most important word in this entire verse. 
In Greek, there are two words that you can use for of. One is the word hupo, which would be spelled H-U-P-O. If they had used that word, which they did not, but if they had used it, it would have implied direct agency, which means these Jews would have been saying to James, James, our lives are being crushed, devastated, and destroyed directly by God himself. God himself has done all of this to us. But they knew better not to say that. So instead, they use a different preposition, the preposition apo, A-P-O. The word apo means to do something from a distance or to do something remotely. To do something from a distance or to do something remotely. And if you carry this preposition apo into this text, it means these believers were saying to James, our lives are being crushed, devastated, and destroyed. And we know that God is not directly doing this, but apo from a distance. In some remote way, God who is sovereign and who could have stopped all of this obviously has not, and therefore apo from a distance remotely, God has permitted and allowed all of these tragic events to pass into our lives. Well, that sounds just like what I heard when I was growing up in the Baptist church. Because we believed everything ultimately came from God. Well, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, there is almost not a revelation of a personal devil. It's almost not there. The word devil only appears several times in the Old Testament. And because they did not have an understanding in the Old Testament that there was a devil, they really thought everything ultimately came from God, whether it was a flood or a disease or a pestilence or a war. Somehow they thought that God in his great sovereignty allowed everything to happen. And because they didn't know there was a devil, it means the devil was able to operate in a camouflage. He could do whatever he wanted to do, any kind of devastation he wanted to bring, and people would just open their arms and receive it because they thought it came from God. And in fact, there was not really a revelation of the devil until the ministry of Jesus began. And we read in Matthew chapter 4 that when Jesus began to preach, that a great light shined on them that sat in darkness. And Jesus was the first to say, the devil hath bound this one. The devil has done this. The devil has done this. It was Jesus that turned on the light to show that there was not only God, but there was a sinister force which brought evil into the earth. Now, I grew up as a Southern Baptist. I think you might have a few Southern Baptists in this area. <laughs> I'm very grateful that I was taught the Bible. My church loved the Bible, but we really did not believe that the devil was a problem. In fact, if anybody talked about the devil in our church, we thought they needed psychiatric help. Why are they talking about the devil? Come on, you've got to be kidding me. This is just a joke. We did not take that serious. We believed in the sovereignty of God, that everything ultimately came from God. Though we were New Testament believers, we had Old Testament thinking. That's Old Testament thinking. So, for example, when we had Wednesday night prayer meeting, which really was not a prayer meeting. I don't know why we called it that, but people would give prayer requests, and then there was never any prayer. But somebody would say, please pray for my Uncle Joe. He has terminal cancer. He's about to die. The pastor would say, yes, we need to pray for him to have the grace of God to accept that cancer and to glorify God in that cancer. No one ever had a thought that the cancer may be from another source. No one ever had a thought that maybe cancer should be resisted. We didn't understand that. No one had ever taught that to us. We thought everything ultimately came from God. And here's the problem. If you think ultimately everything comes from God, then you'll throw your arms open to receive everything that comes along, whether you should or whether you should not. And that is why James is making it so clear. We need to know what comes from God, and we need to know what does not come from God. 
And now James says to his readers, stop it, stop it now. I never want to hear it again. How dare you say when your lives are being crushed, devastated, and destroyed, that you're being crushed, devastated, and destroyed remotely from a distance by the permissive will of God that for some reason has seen fit to send all this devastation into your life. And I think personally that James was a little upset about this because it was his brother Jesus who hung on the cross. And when Jesus hung on the cross, my friends, he absorbed in himself not just our sin. He absorbed in himself poverty. He absorbed all that destruction, all that devastation. Every penalty that should ever be passed on to us was absorbed into Jesus. I say Jesus was like a great net that caught it all and took it all upon himself so that it could not pass on to us. He stood between us and all of that. And for God now to send all of that into our life, God would literally have to say, Excuse me, Jesus, I know that you died for all of that, but, you know, in this particular case, I'm just going to ignore the work of the cross. I'm going to walk around you, and I'm going to afflict them anyhow. It is illogical. God would not do it. It is a violation of the work of the cross. So James says, let no man say, stop it, stop it now. I never want to hear it again. When your lives are being crushed, devastated, and destroyed, I'm being crushed, devastated, and destroyed remotely from a distance by the permissive will of God who for some mysterious and strange reason has seen fit to send all of this into my life. James says, just cut it out. I don't want to ever hear that again. And then he adds, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth any man with evil, which means nothing in God responds to evil. God has no personal experience with evil at all. There is no evil in heaven, and therefore God doesn't have anything evil to give to anybody else. It's not there. God doesn't know it. He has no experience with it, which means if anybody ever asks you, is there anything God cannot do? The answer is yes. There is something God cannot do. He cannot tempt you with evil. It is not his nature. He doesn't have any evil. He simply cannot do it. Once evil tried to find its way into heaven in the person of Lucifer, and it fell so fast, Jesus said he fell like lightning. Evil does not exist in the presence of God. He doesn't have any, and therefore tempteth he no man with evil. He doesn't have any to give to anybody else. So then the question arises, what then does God give? Well, that answer is in verse 17. And in verse 17, James answers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Let's begin the very first of verse 17. It says every. The word every literally means every. The word good is the word agathos. The word agathos here translated good in Greek describes that which is beneficial or advantageous, which tells us, first of all, if it comes from God, it's going to be good. It's going to provide some kind of an advantage for your life. And then James adds the word gift which is dosis in Greek, it describes the habitual giving of God, which means this is not what God does occasionally or just when you've behaved right or on a good day, but every day habitually coming out of God continually is every good, beneficial, advantageous, giving, 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 giving. Now, you know, some people think that God is like the great slot machine in the sky, and if they just do everything right and Pull that lever just right. All those lemons or apples will line up and bam, something good will come in rolling out. But the good news is this verse says, if you're going to look at God like the great slot machine in the sky, it means every day the lemons and the apples line up. It's God's nature to give and to give and to give. You hit the jackpot every day because every good giving, habitual giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and every perfect gift. The word perfect is the Greek word telos. The word telos describes that which matures or completes. 
that which matures or completes, which means if something comes from God, here you have a very simple test. Number one, the word good, it's going to be beneficial. It's going to provide some kind of an advantage for your life. Number two, he calls it a perfect gift, the Greek word telos, which means if it comes from God, it's going to complete you. It's going to mature you. In some way, it's going to be a perfecting gift. So now you can just stop and ask the question about what's going on in your life right now. If you're having cancer or sickness or some kind of a tragedy happening in your home and you're tempted to think, well, maybe God somehow in his sovereign way from a distance remotely has just allowed all this to pass into my life, just cut it out because according to verse 17, it fails the test. It's not a benefit to your life. It provides no advantage to your life. It is not completing. It is not maturing. It is not perfecting. Now, I'm just very simple, but let me ask you, does cancer add to your life or does it take away from your life? It detracts from your life. It takes your money. It takes your time. It takes your health. It takes everything. It fails the test. Now, James is the pastor in the church in Jerusalem, so he's making the test very simple. And he says, if it comes from God, it's a benefit, it is an advantage, it will complete, it will mature, it will add to your life. They are perfecting gifts when they come from above. Now notice it says from above. Now he speaks in comparative language. From above means as opposed to what comes from below. What comes from below? Darkness, sickness, disaster terrible events, but from above, now he's speaking in comparative language, every good gift, the Greek actually says every good habitual giving, every completing, perfecting, maturing gift is from above as opposed to what comes from below and does what? Cometh down. Everybody say cometh down. Oh. Cometh down is the Greek word katabino. I just love this word. The word kata means down. It's a preposition which carries the idea of something that is conquering, dominating, or subjugating. Did you get that? Conquering, dominating, or subjugating. The second part of the word is bino, which means to walk. But when you put the two words together, it describes something that is coming down so hard. It is conquering. It is dominating. It is subjugating. And in fact, this word katabina was used by the ancient Greeks to describe a downpour of rain. Now, how many of you have ever been in a downpour so heavy that you're conquered, dominated, and subjugated by it? You just can't do anything because the rain is falling so hard. I can refer to Oklahoma storms. And in Oklahoma, when, it, when there's a downpour, I don't know about here in Alabama, but when we have a downpour in Oklahoma, you cannot see the taillights on the car in front of you. You cannot see the lines on the road if you're driving. You've just got to pull over and stop because you're so dominated, you're so controlled, conquered, and subjugated by this rain that is just pouring, 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 pouring. And that is the word that is used here, which means James says, hey, Every good and perfect gift is from above, and it's coming down in a downpour that is dominating. It is conquering. It is subjugating, which means God wants us to be totally subjugated and conquered by good and perfect gifts pouring all around us. So somebody asks the question, all right, so if good and perfect gifts are just downpouring all around me, then why am I not occasionally hit by one of them? It's a good question. Everything is received by faith. And if you've got your head in the gutter and moaning and groaning because of everything that's going on in your life, God can be raining everything good around you and you are not even aware of what's coming your way. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that we need to give earnest heed to what we've heard lest at any time we should let them slip. It's a picture of God trying to get somebody to play catch. God is sending wonderful things in our direction. 
one after another after another, waiting for somebody who will say, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. You've got to take them by faith or they will slip by you. And if you've got your head in the molly grubs and you're looking down, God can pour it all around you and you will not experience. You've got to lift your head and say, hey, Lord, I'm ready for your good and perfect gifts to hit me all over the place. You've got to reach out and take it by faith which is why you need to understand how to use your faith. And that's what I'm going to speak about in the second service today. But let's continue. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down, catabino, it's pouring down. From the who? Father of lights as opposed to the father of darkness. With whom is no variableness? neither shadow of turning. But notice those two words, with whom. In Greek, it is parun, the word para, which means alongside. The word para is a preposition. It's where eventually we get the word parasite. When you talk about the word para, you mean to be as close as you can be. You can't be much closer than a parasite. But here it's describing us, and James is giving pastoral advice. He's saying, with whom? Para. If you'll just draw para right alongside of un, right alongside of him, if you'll get right in God's face, if you'll come as close to him as you can and look into his very being, you will find that on this issue of what God gives and what God never gives, there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The word variableness means on this issue, God never variates. He never changes. He's not going to do it for one this way and another that way. On the issue of what he gives and what he never gives, there is never variation. It is permanently decided in fact, it goes on to say, neither shadow of turning. Neither shadow of turning. What does that really mean? Neither shadow of turning is a very old term in Greek, which was used to describe a Roman sundial. Now, how many of you know what is a Roman sundial? All right, for those who do not know what is a Roman sundial, I'm going to tell you. A Roman sundial was a stone that was cut and it had a place for the different hours of the day. It had one piece of metal, which was vertical. And as the earth rotated, the shadow would move because the shadow was just moving all the time. But now we find that word used here, which literally means, on this issue of what God gives and what God never gives, he never variates, in fact, he is fixed on this issue. He never changes. He never budges. The shadow never moves, which means you never have to wonder if something tragic is from God because God's not going to change his position. He never moves on this issue. He is always the same. He gives what is good. He gives what is perfecting. This is what comes from above as opposed to what comes from below. And on this issue, God never budges. And James basically says, if you don't believe me, Parun, you just go pull up alongside of God himself, look right into his very being, and you will find that in him there is no evil. In him there is no darkness at all. He doesn't have anything bad that he could ever give to anybody. It's just beyond God's capability. He doesn't do it. He cannot do it. Amazing. Then he adds in verse 18, of his own will, begat he us with the word of truth. The word of truth here refers to what he's been talking about. The good news of the gospel, that every good and perfect gift is from above. Of his own will. In Greek, it is the word bulomai, which means I counsel, or it describes a counseling session which means God attended a counseling session to make his mind up about a few things. Well, who was going to counsel God? Nobody. So God counseled himself, and that's why this verse says, of his own will. He gave himself some advice. He made a decision by himself. And what is his decision? That he would begat us with this word of truth. The word begat, the Greek word apokuo, which 
describes an abnormal birth, which means God chose that when people were born again, they would be born differently than other people. This would be supernatural. It would be different. We would be born with this wonderful word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, a new species, a new species. And here is the plan of God. Here's his will. It's not always achieved because you've got to embrace it. You've got to receive it. But God's plan was that when people got saved, they would be translated out of the kingdom of darkness where every evil thing takes place into the kingdom of light where every good thing takes place. And in the kingdom of light, there is to be no darkness. In the kingdom of light, there is to be no affliction. In the kingdom of light, there is to be no disaster. There is to be no poverty. This is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his own dear son, a place ruled by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And God's plan was for us to be translated from darkness into this new realm where there's a dividing line separating where we used to live and where we live now. Now we're children of the light. And God's intention is that we live in the light and we experience the benefits of the light, which is everything we've just seen in verse 17. And this means if darkness tries to cross that line into your life, you don't have to stop and ask, hmm, I wonder if God is the one letting that darkness into my life. No, no, no. If that darkness is crossing the line, rather than throw your arms open and say, maybe God somehow is doing this, now you understand your position is to push it back across the line because that is no longer to be a part of your life. You're to drive it back across the line which is why you need to know how to operate in faith, the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, all of that is essential. And now our role is to keep the darkness out, to push it out. Now the truth is sometimes we open the door to the darkness by ourselves. Sometimes it is our own stupidity which allows the things which take place in our life, and we have to be honest about that. Sometimes we scream devil when in fact we need to be saying, Lord, I opened the door for something really bad in my life. And the first process of getting that out of your life is repenting. And when you repent, then you have power to shove that thing back across the line. Repentance is powerful. But then notice what he says in verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren. Huh. The word brethren here is really important. It's the Greek word adelphos. This word adelphos describes two born out of one womb, so it could be translated as brethren. But it was also used during the time of Alexander the Great as a military term. And by the time you come to the New Testament, it is frequently used in that militaristic way. Let me give you an example. Alexander the Great was viewed to be the greatest soldier that had ever lived up to that time and probably still is. And because he was such a venerated commander, everyone wanted to have some kind of affiliation with Alexander the Great. So from time to time, he would have a huge award ceremony with thousands and thousands and thousands of attending soldiers. And he would stand on a platform like this with a big fire burning behind him. People were just nearly adoring him. Alexander the Great, that's him. He's right in front of us. And then one by one, he would begin to call the names of soldiers who had really struggled but had stayed in the fight. And he would call them on stage and would wrap his arm around them and would say, let all the empire know that Alexander the Great is proud to be the brother of this soldier. And he would just hug him and say, this is my brother. It had a military connotation. It carried the idea of camaraderie, comrades. Now you carry that into the New Testament. 
James is writing to people that are struggling. They are really struggling with their faith. But rather than say, you ought to know better than that, and by golly, the next time I see you, I'm going to set this straight, rather than judge them. James, the great commander in Jerusalem, reaches out, wraps his arms around these struggling believers and say, hey, you might be going through a hard time, but you are still in the fight. And I want it to be known, I'm proud to be affiliated with anybody who's still slugging it out every single day. And there's a great lesson in this. When you're a great spiritual leader, you don't have to lord that over others. Like Jesus, who left glory and came to earth as a man, you can come down to the level of those that are struggling. You can identify with them. You can help them. You can connect with them. And that's what this word brother is. And now James comes right down to them. He says, brothers or comrades, you could translate it like that. He says, wherefore, my beloved Brethren, my comrades, let every man, in Greek, every man is hekestos. It means every man without exception. Be slow to hear, slow to speak. I'm sorry, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Notice, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Of these three things, there's only one thing you're supposed to do fast. That's here. The word swift, the Greek word takus, which means to move your feet as fast as you can. It depicts a person running so fast that both feet do not hit the ground at the same time. It's not just moving fast. It is swiftly running. Run to hear. Run to hear what? Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and gift, perfect gift is from above. Their flesh, their old Jewish background was saying to them, God did this. God is allowing this. He's telling them, shut it up. Don't listen to that. You need to open your ear to re- renew your mind to the truth. Be swift to hear. Open your ear. Run to the truth as fast as you can. And then he adds... Be slow to speak and slow to wrath. The word slow in both cases, slow to speak, slow to wrath, is the Greek word braduno. And I'm going to tell you exactly what it means. It's a word that I think is no longer kosher. But it really is the word which means to be retarded. That's really what it means. I don't know if people even use that word anymore. But the Greek literally means when it comes to speaking too fast, it pays to be a little retarded. Be slow. Make sure you have a hard time getting the wrong words out of your mouth. Rather than be fast to speak, shut your mouth and make it very hard for you to say what you want to say because you're listening. And be slow to wrath, braduno, same word. The word wrath, the Greek word orgate, describes something that's all blown out of perspective. And by the way, there's a great principle here. You know, you can control your wrath as long as you don't talk about it. But when you begin to talk, oh, 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 it's like you have loosened the valve. And you begin to talk more and then more and more and more and more and more. The Bible calls it thumas, which is raging passions. Orge, which describes your emotions that get all bent out of shape. Suddenly you're a raging mess. You should have kept your mouth shut. And open your ears to hear the truth. And these believers in particular were getting all bent out of shape with God. They were upset with God. We believed the good news. That's why we came to faith. We embraced it because we believed it was healing. It was deliverance. It was prosperity. It was the goodness of God in our life. That's why we came to faith. And now they're muttering among themselves. Yeah, but look at us now. We don't even know where our kids are. We can't find our relatives. We've lost our money. We've lost our possessions. And I guess God somehow in his sovereignty oppo from a distance remotely has seen fit to allow this mess to come into our lives. And that's why the next verse says, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. It is the equivalent of saying, the way you're moving is not going to produce anything good in your life. You need to put a lid on it. 
and get back to the basics. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Wow. That is amazing. So now we see from these few verses, Pastor James writing to people that are displaced, writing to people that are really struggling. They really are struggling. But he says to them, cut it out, verse 13. I don't want to hear it anymore. Stop it, stop it now. When destruction and devastation is coming into your life, how dare you allege that God would even permissively from a distance in a remote way even allow these things to come from his direction. For God doesn't have anything evil. He doesn't have any experience with it. Therefore, he never gives this kind of thing to anybody else. But here's what is coming from him. And this is what you've got to open your mind to. Oh, my friends, this teaching is so important. It's so important. It means if you go to the doctor and you get a bad report, you don't have to pause for half a second to wonder if God allowed this. If you get a bad report, you can say immediately, this is not a good gift. This is not a perfect gift. God did not have this to give to me. This has come from another source. You're able to draw the line. It gives you direction about what to believe and what to reject. So many people are in trouble because they have embraced the wrong thing. We got to renew our mind to verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is what comes from above as opposed to what comes from below. And it's pouring down around us from the Father of lights as opposed to what comes from the Father of darkness. And on this issue of what God gives and what God never gives, He never moves, there's no variableness. The shadow never budges. It's fixed. It's fixed. God never moves on this question. And we've been translated into the kingdom of light. So if anything dark is trying to come into your life, tragedy, temptation, Disunity in your marriage or problems with your kids, just bad, foul things. Now you understand what you got to do. I'll tell you personally, when something bad begins to happen to us, before I scream devil, first of all, I look in the mirror to see if I did anything to open the door. Devil's always looking for a way to get in. And if I find I did something wrong, I repent. And then I don't wallow in it. I use my authority to say, all right, that's taken care of. Now you get out of here. We're pushing you back across the line. You're not a part of my life. And we have the faith to do that. We have the authority to do that. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next service. Did you get anything out of this today? Thank you so much for letting me minister the word of God to you. Pastor Mark, would you please come? We love you and Pastor Rhonda so much. Put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the wonderful word of God. Lord, your word is just so amazing. It is amazing. I thank you for a Bible-believing church right here in Madison. Thank you for Pastors Mark and Rhonda and the privilege that Denise and I could come all the way from Moscow to be in this service today. And Lord, I'm believing we're not here by accident. Someone here needed to hear what I had to share today. And Father, for those that are experiencing any measure of darkness in their life, I pray you would give them the fortitude to push it back across the line. And Lord, help us to renew our minds and look up so we will be hit by those good and perfect gifts.